Um, so good morning. How is everybody? Good. It's good to see you. Happy 4th of July. Let me be one of the first to tell you happy 4th of July. I'm, I may be a little bit early in that greeting, but I know that it's right around the corner. What, we just a couple these days away, right? Wednesday. Uh, we'll have a chance to celebrate our nation's independence. I'm sure many of you have plans. You've got places to be, trips to take, uh, occasions to celebrate, whatever it is. You know, we, we as Americans, we've been celebrating our independence uh, from the very beginning. It didn't take long for us to really enjoy celebrating the 4th of July. Interestingly enough, though, as I was reading up on it this past week, it did take us a long time to actually make it a national holiday. I don't know if you know that or not, but we were really slow in making that decision. It was almost 100 years. It was 1870 before we made it a national holiday. I mean, it was so slow, so inefficient in making that decision, you almost wonder if the nation's founders were all Baptists, right? I mean, it just is, took way too long. If you didn't get that joke, join the church, and you'll figure it out in a year or two. So, so the point is that we've always been celebrating, and we enjoy celebrating, uh, and we do it in a lot of different ways. Fireworks are a common experience on the 4th of July. Americans love fireworks. Every year, we purchase somewhere in the neighborhood of around 247 million pounds of fireworks, which kind of blows my mind. It's a billion-dollar industry. Uh, we love fireworks. We love food, right? And we tend to really gravitate towards hot dogs for, for the 4th of July celebration. In 2015, 155 million hot dogs were consumed, and that was just by Joey Chestnut, right? I mean, that in and of itself. He's kind of become a mainstay for 4th of July as well. If, if you don't know Joey Chestnut, he's the guy that every year competes in these food-eating competitions, these hot dog-eating competitions. He's won 10 out of the last 11 years. Last year broke his own record and ate 72 hot dogs in like 10 minutes or something like that, right? And, and I look at that and I think, God, how does he feel after eating 72 hot dogs? Like that's got to be mind-blowing. And, and, and I think about it because a lot of times, yes, he's, he's famous right now. People know his name. He gets referenced in sermon illustrations all over the world now. I'm sure it's all this great notoriety he loves. But don't you know he finishes eating all that and he thinks to himself, oh man, that is not worth it, right? Like he's got to be wrestling with that. And, and that's a question I think we all ask ourselves at different times when we encounter things that are difficult or uncomfortable is we ask ourselves, is it worth it? it it's a question that we've asked as a nation on numerous occasions, isn't it? I mean, we have this, this wonderful, um, amazing experiment that we call democracy, this freedom that we have, and yet we constantly encounter struggles throughout our nation's history. Right? It's not just the Revolutionary War, it's the Civil War, it's the Great Depression, right? it's civil rights, it's all the world wars, it's the war on terror, it, it's even now this recent political hostility and aggression that we have. We, we are constantly seeing these challenges through the course of our nation's history that I'm willing to bet that both political leaders and citizens alike at some point or another have said to themselves, is this worth it? And, and when we find ourselves wondering that, the way in which we typically answer that question is to revert back to the price that was paid, right? What, what it actually took to achieve it. And we can stop, and we often do during this time of year, and reflect upon the fact that in all of the American wars that we've been involved in, more than 1.1 million Americans have lost their lives so that we can enjoy fireworks and, and eat and celebrate and, and engage in debate. Right? And so when we see the price that was paid, the fact that other people were willing to lay down their life for our freedom, it's very easy for us to say, yes, it's, it's worth it. And I present that to you this morning, not just to celebrate or acknowledge our nation's independence, but because the gospel is very similar. 
right? There are things that we encounter in following Jesus that are not easy, right? It's, it's difficult in many different ways, and there are times where we become overwhelmed with those challenges and those discomforts, and we think to ourselves, is this really worth it? But in a similar point of reflection, we can look back to the price that was paid and the freedom that was purchased for you and me so that we can enjoy the free gift of eternal life. And when we do, we can see without a doubt, yes, it's absolutely worth it. And that's what I hope we can be inspired by again today in our time together as we open up God's word, is to once again see the um, amazing worth and value of this gospel that changes us. And so let me just pray for us as we open up God's scripture and ask that he would illuminate our hearts and our minds to see the value of this gospel. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you, and we are grateful for this day. We are grateful for this morning, grateful for a chance for us to come in and celebrate what you have done. And so we ask that now as we open your word, you would, you would stir us, Father, that you would awaken us to, to the amazing cost that secured for us our redemption through Jesus. And that when we see it, Father, we can celebrate it and it can transform who we are and we can continue to serve you and worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, may you be glorified in this moment before we submit it to you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 2. Now, one of the things uh, about going at this pace through the book of Jonah is that it does present some of its own challenges, right? I mean, part of the challenge is just that it's taken a long time to get through Jonah, right? In fact, uh, just the other day in staff meeting, Mason turned to me and he was like, so like, when are we going to kind of pick up the pace a little bit? Like, are we going to finish this by the end of the summer or not? And I was like, well, we'll get there. You know, trust me, chapter four will move somewhat quickly. It does feel a little bit slower at times, but, but the, the other challenge that I would also point out to you is that sometimes when we go this verse-by-verse sort of approach, you can have a tendency to lose the forest through the trees, right? And you don't always see the, the overall message. And, and I was really grateful a couple of weeks ago when Brian filled in for me that he kind of zoomed out a little bit and, and reiterated some of those primary points, right? That God is a God who loves all people. He is a God of rescue. And we see that consistently. However, what I love about this pace is it allows us to operate within those themes and extract specific messages that hopefully connect to us on different levels, right? You think about the things we've talked about. We've talked about how God reveals himself through his spoken word. That, that all of us are either moving towards obedience or disobedience, right? We're either pressing into God or we're moving away. And we need to always ask ourselves the question, which direction are we going? We, we talked about how God sends storms and the challenging truth of that. How do we understand that? How does that impact our understanding of suffering and pain? We, we talked about that God is sovereign, right? He's the maker of the sea and dry ground and, and his sovereignty over all that he's created, we had a chance to look at the sailors and this wonderful interaction that they've had between uh, Yahweh and, and their conversion experience. We talked about God's unexpected mercy and the fact that he sent a great fish to save Jonah. We talked about how God hears our prayers, and last week we looked at the value of keeping our eyes focused on his holy temple. So, so you can look into these specific messages and extract them through these themes, and that allows a little bit more introspection into some of the detail that you find in this passage. Well, today... We're going to land on another key theme that is really prevalent in chapter 2. It, it just saturates the second chapter, but I would also tell you it is indicative, it is essential to what we see in the scriptures as a whole. And, and this is a very important theme for us to wrestle with. Okay? Now, we talked about chapter 2 several weeks ago in its introduction that this is a psalm or a prayer that, that Jonah is praying from inside the fish. 
and, and it's a thanksgiving psalm. And, and when you think about a, a psalm of thanksgiving or a prayer of thanksgiving, it tends to follow a similar structure, a similar, similar rhythm. And part of that structure and rhythm is where the psalmist or the one who's offering the prayer identifies a moment of distress that God had saved them from. Okay? And so this is consistently referenced through this second chapter of Jonah and, and what his distress was, was this encounter with death. And that's the theme that we're going to wrestle with today is this idea of making sense and understanding the certainty of death, which is obviously prevalent in chapter 2, but as I said, it, that is central to the gospel. That is central to the scriptures as a whole. And so it's a very important uh, aspect for us to consider today. We've, we've referenced it a little bit in previous verses, but we're going to look at it in greater detail this morning. Now, I'm, I'm going to back up if you have your Bibles. I don't know if it's on the screen. I forgot to mention this earlier in our meeting. But I'm going to start in verse 2, and then I'm going to read through verse 7. The, the verses that are our focus this morning are verses 5 through 7. Okay, so here's what Jonah's praying from inside a fish. Always blows my mind. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me, and I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. All right, th this... Uh, passage, those two verses in particular, are building upon this idea of death that you heard us reference hopefully the last two weeks. Right? If you go back up to verse 2, you have this reference to the realm of the dead. Last week we talked about the deep, we talked about the, bra uh, the breakers and the waves and how they are signs of calamity and destruction. So we've seen this teased consistently throughout this prayer, but here in verses 5 and 7, it is just filled with terminology that speaks to speaks to this challenge of death, okay? And so I want us to identify some of these terms and look at them in detail so that we can see just how vivid of a picture Jonah is painting for us and what he faced, right? So, so the first word, and, and I'm not going to go in exact order, but I'm going to kind of bounce around a little bit. The first word I want to call to your attention is this word engulfed, right? And this is this understanding of drowning. Right? He, he is swarmed around by these waters, and so he's engulfed with the waters. It's this image of drowning that he's going to continue to, to elaborate upon as he continues through this prayer, and this drowning is threatening him. Now, when you and I use the word threaten, right, we, we use it in a lot of different contexts. We use it in a lot of different situations, right? We, keep, we can feel threatened to lose our jobs. We can feel threatened to lose income. We can be threatened by physical harm. And, and none of those things, while they're important, none of those things really capture the severity in which this term is used in this prayer, because this word in this context literally means that he is in threat of losing his life. He is in the threat of, of ultimate death, right? He is, he is losing that very essence of his existence, right? His, his, his life is being threatened, and he's saying this through all this terminology that is further complemented by that word surrounded. Again, that's, that's a concept that maybe we identify with in different circumstances and seasons. Like when we feel like, we're just surrounded by trouble, right? It, it's that season of life where we just feel like things just keep going wrong over and over again, and we just seem to be surrounded by these difficulties. And, and while those, again, are worthwhile to consider, very rarely does it actually articulate 
with the intensity that we have here in this prayer. Because when you and I use this word surrounded, we typically still have an understanding that there is a way out. There's at least one option that we can consider. Now, we may not like all those options. We may not like the time that it may take to pursue those options, but we still have some way to find ourselves out. When you're drowning and you're surrounded by water, there is no way out. This is an inescapable situation. He is desperate for one more breath, one more opportunity, and none has presented itself. He is surrounded. Right? Then, and it's not just that he's surrounded by the waters, he's being choked, he's, he's got the seaweed wrapped around his head. In verse 7 it says his life is ebbing away. Now that's an interesting word that, that implies that he's, he's fainting, he's losing that energy, but it also carries with it this connotation of understanding a separation from God. Right, that as he is facing this distress, he is recognizing his separation from his creator that is what really was the catalyst to this situation to begin with. Right, and so his life is ebbing away. You have all these, these terms that are describing the very essence of his drowning, and it complements this undeniable picture of death. Right, we see the reference to the deep again. We see this reference to this downward descent. But there are two unique in verse 5 through 7 that also bring it to greater clarity. He talks about the roots of the mountains and the, the earth beneath barring him in. Now those are two phrases that were very uh, familiar and popular to ancient Near Eastern culture as well as Old Testament culture that reference the underworld, the realm of the dead. Okay? And, and so the, the belief was that at the root of these mountains is where the, the realm of the dead existed and there were these gates that were used to bar the dead in so that they could not return to the land of the living. And so Jesus himself even builds on this idea when he says the gates of hell or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against his church, right? It's this idea that there's this inability to get back to the realm of the living. And so Jesus, or or, excuse me, Jonah is referencing this undeniable picture of that which is the realm of the dead. And, And perhaps one of the most common words that we see, not just in this prayer, but in the rest of the text is the word pit, Right? He talks about this pit, this, this grave that he finds himself in. It's this, this image that we see in Job 33, Psalm 103, Ezekiel 28. You see it all these different places of life being in the pit or in the grave. Right? So the point is this. Jonah had reached this point beyond human help. This is the certainty of his death. Now, so much of our discussion so far through this series has been to somewhat apply it metaphorically to our lives, right? Like the storms of life and those sorts of challenges. We need to set the metaphor aside today. Okay? We need to talk about the reality of death, the certainty of it, because that's exactly what Jonah was facing, this, this undeniable escape from death itself. And it makes me wonder, when we tend to encounter the reality of death in our own lives, right? It typically happens at some point as a child. I try to think back to when did I first begin to get introduced to the concept of death. And I don't know that I could pinpoint it, but I would probably think that it had something to do with pets when I was younger. We had a lot of pets growing up, uh, not all at the same time like I do now, but, but earlier it was like in phases. And so I had like a lizard, I had a hamster, I had dogs. Uh, but I think it was the fish. I think the fish was the first time I was introduced to the concept of death. Probably like a fish that I won at the fair, and they give it to you in a little plastic baggie, and you take it home, put it in a bowl, 
and you watch it for like a day or two, you know, and you feed, feed it some water, then all of a sudden as a young kid you walk in and you're like, huh, it's working on the backstroke. Not very good at the backstroke apparently, right? And then you go and you tell your parents and your parents explain something to you and then you watch it get flushed down the toilet. And this is kind of how you get first exposed to it as a young kid, but it doesn't stick with you for very long because then you think, I'll go get another fish and it can be replaced. And so you get exposed to the concept, but it doesn't really hit you until at some point in life you lose a loved one. And that's typically where it hits us, right? Somebody that we're close to in our life. Could be a family member, could be a friend, but somebody that we know that if we close our eyes, we can, we can feel what it's like to embrace them. We can picture their mannerisms. We know their, their personality. We know their thoughts, their dreams. And then all of a sudden, they're no longer there. And we recognize that that person cannot be replaced. Now that, that person's not coming back. And it's there that we begin to see and encounter the certainty of this death. And it's there that it begins to terrify us. And we, we begin to structure our lives in such a way that we do everything we can to avoid death. Right? We work out. We try to stay healthy. We buy security alarms for our home. We buckle our seatbelts. We do all these things to, un, to avoid the inevitable. And, and it's sometimes we'll go to great extremes to avoid it. In fact, uh, I was reminded again of this article that I read that was written in The New Yorker in 2017. I'm pretty sure I've shared it with you before uh, to a certain extent, but I wanted to read you an excerpt again today. Here's the scene, right? There are these wealthy executives, these, these scientists, these researchers, uh, Hollywood elites that have gathered together at this kind of like dinner party that's a fundraiser, and the whole premise behind it is they want to invest their, their money into research to try to overcome death. Okay, that, that's the concept. And so a couple of excerpts from this article. Jun Yun, a doctor who runs a healthcare hedge fund, announced that he and his wife had given the first $2 million toward funding the challenge. I have the idea that aging is plastic, that it's encoded, he said. If something is encoded, you can crack the code. To growing applause, he went on, if you can crack the code, you can hack the code. It's a big ask. More than 150,000 people die every day, the majority by aging-related diseases. Yet Yun believes, he told me, that if we hack the code correctly, thermodynamically, there should be no reason we can't defer entropy indefinitely. We can end aging forever. And then a little bit later in the article, the founder of a biotech firm called United Therapeutics, which intends to grow new organs from people's DNA, says, clearly it is possible through technology to make death optional. Millions of dollars going to great lengths and extremes to end aging forever and to make death optional, right? Indicative that all of us often try to do something to address what we know is inevitable. We all have to give some sort of uh, answer in our own heart and our mind to what are we going to do to make sense of death. Sometimes we run to, to science. Sometimes we run to philosophy. Sometimes we run to religion. But all of us run to something, and every single one of us ends up finding that answer based on faith. And so the question is, where are you going to put your faith to find the answer for the inevitable of death? That's the question. Now, I'll admit to you, y'all, I grew up in a Christian home. Right? So the first worldview that I encountered was one that was, was Christian-based. I understood the stories of Jesus before I knew the others. But I would also tell you that, that I studied philosophy 
pretty significantly in college, that I've studied other religions. I've been to several other countries, and I've had the chance to hear and read other thoughts and other perspectives. And people will try to make sense of this death by saying, well, it just starts over again, or it goes into nothingness, right? Or it's this paradise that achieves all of your fantasies. There are all these different answers, and I will tell you, after reading and think, or thoughtfully considering all of them, there is nothing that compares to the answer we have in Jesus. And it is not hard for me at all to say, that's exactly where I'm going to put my faith. And so as we look at this prayer that brings us to the certainty of death, I want us to take some time this morning to consider how does the Bible make sense of death? And where I want to begin that conversation is for us to consider how does it explain to us in terms of how it arrives, why it's here. See, what we see in the early pages of the scripture is that death is connected to sin. Now the heart of every sin is what we carry within each of us to be our own God, right? To go our own way, or the way it's explained in the early pages is that we want to know right and wrong for ourselves. And so we think we can live independently from God, separate from God. And so God explains that you can do that, but there's a consequence, right? Because God is good. God is light. God is life. And so for us to live apart from him actually results in death. And he says it, if you go that way, you will surely die. And so it's in that rebellion, right? It's in that choice to, to choose that separate life apart from God that death enters into all of creation. Now, we may sit there and think, well, that doesn't seem fair that because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, we now all must suffer the consequences for that act of disobedience. And while I can empathize with that thought, first of all, we, we aren't one to question what's fair when it comes from God. But secondly, once we have a chance to consider the fullness of his plan, we'll see the beauty in what it is that he offers us. And we'll get to that in a second. But make no mistake, right? Sin is the result of our rebellion which leads to this death, which is why it surrounds us. It is inescapable, right? And so we, we often are then overwhelmed by this fact that it is something that we can't avoid we can't escape and it becomes overwhelming to the point that at some point in our lives we all begin to ask ourselves is it worth it is it worth it if this is where it all goes is it worth living this way or doing this thing or enduring these situations and one of the first things that we see that make these scriptures so sacred and so meaningful is that God comes in and he whispers in our ear yes you're worth it and then he demonstrates our worth to him through his love for us. And that's what we begin to see even in the story of Jonah, right? That, that Jonah begins to see this simple phrase, right? It's, it's hidden. It's buried in all these descriptions. But the Lord brought my life up from the pit, Right now we have this trajectory change. He was descending downward, now he's being brought up and he's given his life back. He's given his existence. Everything changed for Jonah. We see that Jonah was literally saved from death. Right? This isn't just some, some metaphor that he's painting. He was on the cusp of dying and God snatched him from the grave and brought him back to new life. And it is this beautiful picture of rescue. And yet what what strikes me as I read this prayer is that it's buried within all these descriptors of death. And if you're not careful, you can miss it, right? And that's actually the risk with how we read 
Jonah as well because it is filled with so much distress and it is filled with all these storms and all these challenges. And so I'm curious, as we've gone through it, how, how does it landed with you? How do you hear this story? When you read it, how, where does your mind gravitate? What are you focused on? Because the tendency is for us to focus on the storms and miss the rescue. Right? That, that's a human tendency that we all experience. I, I was reminded of our tendency to focus on the negative not too long ago. Uh, a couple weeks back, I, I referenced in one of the sermon illustrations my love for sports movies, if you were here for that, and I referenced my love for The Natural, okay? And that's one of my all-time favorite movies, and so kind of reliving that movie and preparing in a sermon kind of reminded me that, you know, I, need, I think it might be time to show this movie to my kids, right? I mean, I think, I think they're ready, and so it just happened to be a night where Jennifer's gone and she was working, and so kids were left with me, which is always a recipe for potential disaster and parenting failures. Uh, I don't have that control in my life, but I just thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if we can do this, and so I looked on Common Sense Media, because it had been a while since I'd seen it. I was like, okay, what am I going to see? Okay, there's a couple things I may have to shield their eyes from or do something for her, but, I, but we're going to go for it, okay? And so we start watching The Natural, and I knew one of the first things I was going to have to shield their eyes from was the gunshot, right, in the early stages where Roy Hobbs gets hurt. And so it starts to come up. I'm like, all right, kids, hide your eyes. Well, they're both, you know, and they're hiding their eyes. And wouldn't you know it, like at the exact wrong time, James peeks, you know, and he sees the whole thing. And it was pretty distressful to him. He's like, oh, I don't want to see that, you know, and kind of like, it was a little bit of a dramatic response. And I tried to kind of calm him back down. I was like, okay, it's okay. But we persevered and we kind of kept on going through, through the movie. And uh, the only other time that we had to worry about it was towards the end where uh, the owner was beginning to blackmail Roy Hobbs. And if you haven't seen the movie, uh, just for the sake of the discussion, the, the lady that shoots Roy Hobbs, she's in this pretty much like a full-length nightgown, okay, because it's staged in the 20s. And so it's like very appropriate. I mean, nothing is shown. But when the owner is showing these pictures to, to Roy Hobbs, he references, and I had the kids hide their eyes at this part because I don't want to see the pictures. He talks about this, this bloody scene with a half-naked woman. And so, James heard that description. And so we get through the rest of the movie. I think we get to celebrate the home run and all this other stuff. Go to bed, wake up the next morning, go to work. Only get a text message from a wife shortly in the morning. It says, so what's this movie where the baseball player gets shot by a half-naked woman? <laughs> Father of the year. Thank you very much. And so I was like, well, he's hiding his eyes, kind of. And, and so <laughs> I realized that that was really the message James took away. And so like later I was even driving with him and he just kept talking about the guy that got shot. And to the point that I finally said, dude, the whole reason I showed you the movie was like for the home run and the music and the excitement. Quit talking about the bad part. But it's, a, it's an indicator and a reminder that that tends to be where we go. Right? A lot of times we go through life and we only hear the negative. And we focus on the challenge, we, we focus on the despair, the distress, and we miss God's rescue. So hear me today, because I know that many of you are in this room today facing different things. There are negative things that have occurred in your life, challenges, things that have caused distress. Yes, sometimes God paints our life with dark colors, but let me assure you today that no matter what you face, it should never take away from the fact that God has defeated death itself. It should always elicit praise and passion within our hearts. That's what Jonah experiences here, this divine rescue that points us to a Savior, 
Because in Jonah, we don't just have a story of some miraculous escape for one man. It points us to one that Jesus refers to who is greater than Jonah that is not going just to elude death but defeat death itself. And so that's how I want us to begin to transition this message. Right? Jonah says in verse 7, he goes, I remembered the Lord. And that's what I want us to do. I want us to follow that example. I want us to remember what God has done. Now, that word remember is more than just not forgetting. It's more than just uh, reflecting upon some, some fond memories. This is a remembrance that calls us to action, right? It calls us to do something. This is, I remember that we were out of milk, so I went to the store and got some, right? I remember that we needed to water the yard, so I turned on the sprinklers. It, it leads to action. That's the sort of remembering that we want to do. And so to do this, if you want, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to I'm going to kind of skim through this. I'm going to paraphrase some of it. But this, to me, is an opportunity for us to see how God has answered the problem of death, right? the problem of the human condition, and it calls us to remember what God has done through Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read just the first two verses of 15 to set the tone. Then I'm going to paraphrase several other verses through the rest of the chapter. It's one of my, my favorite chapter, chapters that captures the essence of this gospel, So Paul begins in chapter 15, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. All right, now that sets the tone, right? Because what Paul's doing is the same thing Jonah did. He's trying to remind us. He wants us to recall. He wants us to remember what God has done. And he points us to this gospel. He says, I want to remind you of this gospel, which you have received... And the one that was preached to you. And that's a great word to each of us that this gospel is not something that we just sing about. It's not just something that we write about. It's not just something we think about. We have to receive it. Right? The parable of the sower tells us of all the different types of responses that we can have to what God has done through Jesus. Some people hear this good news and it's as if their heart is a rocky path and completely rejects it. Some, the word of God is a seed that comes in, but the devil comes and takes it away with deception and lies and temptation. Some of us, we receive this gospel and it's choked out by the worries of the world and it never takes root. But for others, we receive it and it plants within our hearts and our souls and it yields a crop and a harvest of more than a hundredfold. We must understand that this gospel is always a gospel of invitation. Jesus says, come and follow me. That invitation has to be received. And if you have never done that, then may I urge you, let today be the day that you receive it, right? This is the gospel which you received and on which you have taken your stand. It is everything. We don't take our stand based on our jobs, based on our dreams, based on our success, based on our ambitions, based on our family. No, we take our stand on the gospel and the gospel alone. It is the only thing that truly defines us. Excuse me. It is the only thing that truly defines us. It is where we anchor our roots, It is this gospel, and the reason we anchor ourselves there is because it saves us. It is the thing that is going to rescue us from the certainty of death. Your family can't save you. Your relationships can't save you. Only this gospel can save you if, if you hold firm. that's, That's a word of caution. That's a word of seriousness. It's not enough for us just to come to church. It's not enough for us just to be familiar. It's not enough for us to be able to quote scripture here and there. No, we have to cling to it in every season 
in every circumstance. And if we do that, then we get to receive the salvation. Otherwise, we believe in vain. It's no longer worth it. And that's the risk that Paul is really trying to highlight is this potential of us believing in vanity. And so he summarizes the gospel, right? If you continue to read, you would see, all right, Jesus died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was raised on the third day, and then he appeared to all these people, more than 500 men and women, some at the same time, many of whom are still living, which is Paul's way of saying, <clears throat> go ask them. They're still alive. You can go ask them about that. And he puts this emphasis on the appearances <clears throat> that Jesus makes because it points to the resurrection. <clears throat> I'll clear it eventually. Sorry. It points to the resurrection. Right? And so once he's established the value of the resurrection, you get to verse 12, which is when Paul then presents this key question. Right? If all these things have happened, then why is it that some of you are wondering whether or not they're dead or raised? Right? That's the question. You begin to ask about the resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> and that's something that many of us wrestle with, right? That goes to the question at the beginning. When we encounter the certainty of death and we hear this gospel, we begin to wonder, can we truly be raised? Is that really what happens? And we begin to question it. And Paul crystallizes the seriousness of that question, the seriousness of that doubt. Right? Because if you were to continue to read after verses 12 in that next paragraph in that section, you'd say, listen, if the dead aren't raised, then neither is Jesus. And if Jesus isn't raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. Which brings us back to that image of Jonah drowning. That's our reality. If we question whether or not death has actually been defeated, whether or not resurrection is actually possible, <clears throat> then we continue to wrestle with this undeniable certainty that, that we are descending towards the realm of the dead. We're still in our sins. I love the way he says it in that one verse. He says, if it is only for this life that we have Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all people. <laughs> now listen, I believe that when we follow Jesus, Good things happen in our life, right? I believe that it makes life better, that we get blessings, that we get all these wonderful snapshots of joy and promise and all these wonderful things. But the Bible is clear. If you are only following Jesus for this life to be better, you should be pitied more than anyone else. So there is something greater than this life, something greater that we cling to. And so he re-summarizes that gospel. He says, now, if death entered through one man, so the resurrection enters through one man. This is where we see the fairness and the justification that God has, has given to us through Jesus. He says that if death came through Adam, then through Christ, all are made alive. And then he begins to explain the mystery of how we're made alive. He gives us this imagery that, that builds upon this picture of a, of a seed being sown into the ground and then raised in this new splendor and this new glory. In the same way, our bodies, when we die, are planted in the ground, but then are resurrected with a new splendor and a new glory. One of the reasons we struggle with this is because we haven't taught fully enough of what happens after the resurrection. It is so much more than your soul escaping your body so that you can go float on a cloud and play a harp. It's so much more than that. You get this heavenly body where the perishable is clothed with imperishable, where the mortal is clothed with immortality. And we have this chance to long for this heavenly dwelling. 
right, that Revelation speaks of, this, this new Jerusalem, this new heaven, this new earth, this new city where we get to be with God, we get to reign with God, we get to serve with God, and, and all that we do in this life will be judged. We will be held accountable for what we do in this life, which will inform what we do in the next. And all of it matters, and it is there in this new heaven, in this new Jerusalem, that we finally get to see the fulfillment of this gospel, that we will be his people, he will be our God, and finally we will see that all of our tears are wiped from our eyes. There is no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. It is there that we begin to see the fullness of Paul's phrase, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What kind of message and hope is this. What an amazing thing that we have a chance to share and proclaim. And so I want to close by just reading the way that Paul challenges us just with these final few verses that brings it to crystal clarity for me. When we think about what God has done for us, how he has rescued us, and we begin to see how we need to be transformed, it calls us to action. We look here towards the end of this chapter when Paul says, when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Therefore, Brothers and sisters, stand firm. Whatever you're facing today, whatever struggles, whatever temptations, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He is always worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this unexpected mercy, this unbelievable grace, and this divine rescue. Father, the fact that you give us a chance to see that even in the certainty of death and the inevitability that it will come calling for each of us, we can face that with courage, we can face it with hope and with a certainty that you will redeem us from the grave just as you did Jonah. And we stand in that assurance because of what we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, when we find ourselves going through life wavering on whether or not it's worth it and struggling to find the resolve, struggling to find the courage, when it all seems to be surrounding us, may we once again remember what you have done and may we stand firm. May nothing move us. And may we give ourselves fully to you because we've seen the price that has been paid and the freedom that has been secured for us. So may we continue to live our lives in such a way, Father, that you would be glorified and honored by the way in which we see and declare to this world that you are always worth it. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.